All right. Good afternoon, everyone. I <clears throat> hope you guys are doing great. Beautiful day outside. We're going to get back into Deuteronomy chapter 4 this week. We did three and we did part of four last week. Moses is finishing up the section of this book that is known as the historical prologue where he's given the reasons why Israel as the vassal should keep their covenant treaty that they're making with God, which is what the entire book of Deuteronomy is. Always important. I'm going to harp on that every week so that you always remember as you leave, Deuteronomy is an ancient Near East treaty document. And that is the structure of the book. That's what forms the book. That's also why we know the book was not a late invention after the exile, written by the JEDP authors and combined together into this document we have today. That's an old hypothesis that was put forward by European scholars in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and it does not fit with what we know about ancient Near East treaty formats, which Deuteronomy matches almost identically. So it's important to keep that in mind because you go to any history of religion school or any secular uh, even Christian higher education places, and you'll learn that Deuteronomy was patched together long after the events and not at all written by Moses. And there's just no good, compelling reason to believe that anymore, especially with the last 50 years of ancient Near East studies, archaeology, linguistics, and stuff that's been dug out of the ground that shows Deuteronomy fits right at home in the second millennium B.C., so that's important for those of you that deal with people or, or, or reading and studying on your own, and you're, you'll come across things where they take a critical approach of Deuteronomy, but overly critical, critical in the negative sense. What we want to do is a healthy critical view of Deuteronomy, a text-critical view of Deuteronomy, where we look at what it is first and what it says first, and then maybe later you can try to piece together how it might have come about. You know, where did Moses... Moses didn't write about his own death, which happens at the end of Deuteronomy, so we know there was later editing. And there are places that we saw last week where it says, as it is to this day. So we know that there was later hands that were involved in Deuteronomy. But the bulk of it claims to be from Moses, <clears throat> and that's how every New Testament author that we have any knowledge of treated the book. And so that's how we want to treat it as well. And Moses, it's not just words for Moses, it's the last words for Moses, his final address to his people. This is his final, uh, his farewell, his swan song, um, his last will and testament that he's leaving the people. So in chapter 4, now when he's going to transition into, chapter 4 is going to transition into the next part of the covenant document, which is known as the stipulations. And that will actually begin in chapter 5. Or you could make the argument that chapter 4, verse 41, but, um, or 4, verse 44. Regardless, that'll be the next part where he's going to introduce, okay, now here are the stipulations of this covenant. But right now he's still bringing them all the way from where they've come out of Egypt, historically, narratively, to the point where they are now, which is on the plains of Moab, this, this right across the Jordan River in what would today be modern Jordan, looking into Israel from uh, the east looking westward, and the land is spread out before them. So, Moses, <clears throat> we talked last week, we, we got through the beginning of chapter 4 last week, but we're going to jump back to verse 5 of chapter 4. Moses says, look, or see, 
I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. This great nation. Great nation. Israel is not a great nation right now. They're a collection of slaves and a mixed multitude of non-Israelites that have banded together, come out of Egypt, and been living in the desert for 40 years. This is what every group that longs for statehood wants to see themselves as a great nation go to any conflict in the world that's a political conflict whether it's in the middle east whether it's in the balkans whether it's in south america whether it's here in our revolutionary times anywhere where you have people that are not a nation they long for a nation they long to see their flag raised they long to see their athletes at the olympics their seat at the united nations they long to be a great nation. And Israel is not that at this point. What God is saying, though, is if you obey these commandments, you will be a great nation. And you'll be the greatest nation, actually. Because you, Israel, are my means of rescuing all the other nations from their fallenness and their alienation from me. So Israel was always a, uh, a, meant to be a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. That's the difference between Israel and the other nations. It wouldn't be that they would be geographically greater than the other nations. It wouldn't be that they would be militarily greater or technologically greater necessarily. They might be some of those things. But God's promise would be you are to be, I want you to be, I'm calling you to be ethically greater. Holiness greater than the nations. And for the purpose, why? Of showing off so the other nations feel bad? No. No so that the other nations will look to you and see me. That's the key that runs through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Holiness is not so God, so people can look and see a holy person. It's so they can look and see the God that that holy person serves. I go to India most of, about once a year, and there are people over there, they're, they're babas, they're gurus, and they are, they're almost like celebrities because of how holy they are. And they do weird things, you know. I mean, for us, they're weird. For them, they're, you know, like one guy will just hold his hand in the air for all his life. And it's just all withered and atrophied and his fingernails are all gnarled. And it's, but that's his, like, sacrifice of, like, I'm showing my holiness by living with my hand in the air, you know. Christians used to do it in the ancient times. They'd live on poles. Like, they'd just sit at the top of a pillar in the desert and just sit there. And pilgrims would come and bring them food and whatever they needed because these people had forsaken all the worldly pleasures of comfort and they were only because, because they were so close to God and they were pillar saints and people aspired to be them. You know, every tradition, every religion has these things. And the problem is that those things don't point beyond the person. They point to the person. Look how holy this person is. Holiness is to point to the God, not to the person. Look how holy that God is. Look how amazing that God is, what He's done through that person. That's why God never causes people to such nonsensical asceticism. Even the prophets that lived out in the desert, it was only for a season or it was to, to, to illustrate something for the rest of the nation. It wasn't just that's the high calling. God's never desired a kingdom of monks, but a kingdom of priests. And priests intercede before a person. So when a person takes their offering, they don't take an offering to the priest. 
They take it to the God that the priest is representing. That's a vital distinction that gets lost in religiosity. But that's what God was calling Israel to be in the sight of the nations. So that verse 7, it would say, What great nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? Now there's the NIV, I think they might miss it here, or they, they over-interpret. NIV says, what other nation is so great as to have their God? And that's kind of like Israel saying, see, we're the greatest. But really the text just says, what great nation is so great as to have their gods near them? Meaning, of all these great nations in the world, the thing that makes Israel distinct is not that it's the greatest, but that it has God in its midst. What other great nation? Egypt, Babylon. Assyria, the Hittites. What other great nation has what we have? Verse 8, and what other nation, or what other great nation, or what other nation is so great, whichever take it, um, as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today. Israel's laws and statutes were challenged to be compared to the other laws and statutes of the nations. The law code of Hammurabi, um, which I was in the Bible Museum this weekend, and actually you can see a facsimile of the Hammurabi's code carved on a stela, a, a, a stone monument. And it's pretty similar in many ways to Israel's, but very different in other ways. The, the Middle Assyrian laws, the Hittite treaties, all of these ancient writings, the other nations, the other great nations have decrees and laws. It's not like that's what made Israel unique. It's the content of those decrees and laws and how they compare in that world to those other nations. And when you look at Israel's and you look at the world's, Israel's from our perspective, post-New Covenant, we look back and we see things in Israel's law that, that we're like, well, that should be even more in the direction of being ethical and, 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 and a higher calling. But when we look at from within Israel's setting and the surrounding nations, it already is getting that way. God's entering into the nations where they are with their covenants and their laws and their decrees. And He's pulling Israel out of that. Now, Torah is not the final covenant that He's going to make. Torah itself will talk about a new covenant which will be even greater than this covenant and will put it, the laws in their hearts. So, so Torah is not the end-all, be-all. That's why we can't take... Torah and just make that our laws and say this is this is what God desires for all people for all time it's not but it's a start and it's a start in that culture at that time and that's important when we get to passages that we read that seem to us from this side of the cross as not far enough in the direction of holiness but from that side of the cross in the fallen ancient world of nations that had completely gone away from God and in you know invented or or, or come to be under their own gods you see Israel is, is a pull a pull away from that into the direction of the holiness of God's holiness rather and so he goes on verse 9 <clears throat> only be careful watch yourselves and, and literally it's guard your soul or watch your life nefesh soul life watch guard yourselves is the term you know watch yourselves is a little not quite as emphatic as it is. Guard your souls closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. You know what it doesn't say? Take them to church or synagogue and let them teach them to your children. Don't, don't, don't pawn off 
teaching the faith to somebody else. Don't leave it to the professionals because ministers hate that because they're not your, parent, your kid's parents. You are. And so the primary education that your children or your grandchildren, see it says grandchildren here too, so grandparents, you're not off the hook just because your kids are out of the house. Your job is to teach not only your children and your children's children the things of God. You say, oh, I don't, I'm not a professional Bible scholar. I don't know the things. That, you know what you know. You know why you're a disciple. You know why you live the way you live. Teach them that. And teach them that you don't know everything, but that you're doing the best you can. Teach them that. Right? Don't pawn it off on children's programs. Don't pawn it off on Sunday school. That's the, that's the way you get a generation of people that leave the church as soon as they graduate high school. Teach them at home. He goes on to say, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. When He said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. This is all in Exodus 19 and 20. You came near, you stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens and black clouds and deep darkness. That's the storm theophany that God appeared on top of Mount Sinai to Moses in. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you His covenant, the Ten Commandments, which He commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at the time to teach you the decrees and the laws you are to follow in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is a subtle but important point. He's reminding them in this historical prologue leading up to the covenant of the first time the covenant was given. This book, Deuteronomy, is going to be a renewal of the next generation taking the, that covenant upon themselves. So he's reminding them of the covenant that their parents heard. They were little kids, some of them not even born yet, when, when their parents stood before the mountain. But again, Moses speaks to them corporately as all of Israel. You, you were there, even though some of them weren't there. But as a people, they were there. And he said, you didn't see a form, but you heard a voice. So you, you experienced it. You saw the fire, you saw the smoke. You saw fire, smoke, darkness, uh, thunder. These are all things when God shows up, there's elements of these things usually present somehow. And when he shows up in his glory as a theophany, all the way back to the, 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 when he showed up in the Garden of Eden to judge the man and the woman. And, and it's always there uh, in, when he reveals himself. And that's what they saw, but they didn't see a form. They didn't see, a, 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 I think the word's tamuna, uh, like an actual form, what we would call a, a likeness or an idol, something you could recreate. They didn't see that. But they heard his voice. And a lot of us think that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and then he told the people, no, go back and reread Exodus 20. God spoke the Ten Commandments out loud and all the people heard them. And the Ten Commandments were the ten-point encapsulation of all of the covenant. They were, it was like the preamble or the beginning of the covenant or the outline of the covenant. And then all the rest, and then the people, when they heard those ten words, and they're not commandments in Hebrew, it's the ten words. That's what they're called. There's another word for commandment, and it's not this. I don't know where that came into English translations, but it's ubiquitous now. We can't get around it. But the ten commandments, the ten words, the ten words that I gave you, you heard it. And Israel's response, if you go back to Exodus 19, 20, and 21, their response to hearing those words, they were terrified. And they ran, and they said, Moses, you go hear from him, and then come tell us. Because we can't stand before this. We're, we're terrified. 
and he was showing up as their great suzerain, as their conquering king who had liberated them from their oppressor and brought them into service to him. So they were terrified, they were petrified, and they said, we, don't want to, we cannot hear his voice anymore. It's overwhelming. And so Moses did that. Then Moses heard from God and then get, says, um, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets, verse 14, so two stone tablets, and it's not five on one and five on the other, like we've said. It, treaties were, there were two copies of a treaty. You made a treaty, a covenant, and there were two copies made. It's like a contract with um, carbon copy paper. Now you just use digital ink, but you two copies. You know, you peel one away, there's that nasty pink one that you get, and the, the customer service keeps the original. It's like that. That's what, that's what covenants were. So the two tablets, don't think Charlton Heston coming down with five on one side, five on the other. Um, or uh, Mel Brooks coming down with 15 and dropping a tablet and being like, the 10. It's not that. Two copies of the same covenant, and they were written front and back because this covenant's long. The, the writing would have probably been like 10-point font or 12-point font, like tiny. Two copies. Why? Because both copies in the ancient Near East covenants went to the people that were making the covenant. One copy went back to the king, was deposited in the temple of his god, which was usually his temple as well. The other went back and stayed with the vassal in the temple of their god so that they would always be reminded of their end of the contract. So why is there two copies? Because God's saying this is a binding vassal treaty covenant. Why are they put together? Because God's like, because we're not separated like other treaties. I'm the king who's making a treaty and I'm going to live in your midst. So I'm going to take the treaty back to my house and put it in my temple. And you're going to take your copy to your temple, which just happens to be my temple as well. That's why both copies went into the ark. Even that thing is very symbolic in the ancient Near East. And we miss that because of tradition or just not knowing the background of it. Incredibly significant. The fact that there were two copies is a testament to God saying, I will dwell with you. That's the bottom line. Two copies of the same thing, meaning you don't have to have your copy taken somewhere else because we're in this together. I'm binding myself to you. I'm marrying you is the image that God will use elsewhere. Or I'm adopting you as my firstborn son is the image he'll use. He'll combine these images. Marriage and adoption, those are the two greatest things you can do in, in, in making a relationship between two people that wasn't in existence before then. You don't get closer than marriage and adoption. Those are the two things you become, the two ways you become family. And that's what God's doing to Israel. And so he's telling them this. Then, then Moses then teaches them the decrees and the laws that they're to follow. And Moses did all of this. The rest of Exodus, you know, 21, 22, 23, 24, all of that stuff. All of Leviticus. And the, that's what Moses was commanded to teach the people. Now he's reminding, he's recapping, he's summarizing for their offspring, their descendants that their descendants are about to do the same thing that their parents did, including miraculously cross a body of water. Only it'll be the Jordan River this time instead of the Red Sea. So he goes on, and we'll, we'll get through some of this, but it carries on through the rest of the chapter, so we will not get through all of it this week. But he says, you saw no form, no, no form, no, no image, no idol. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, guard your souls very closely so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or like a woman. Why does that matter? Well, the Canaanites, where they're going, into the land they're going, they had images of gods 
as a man and as a woman. Most of the time, Baal was the man, Asherah was the woman. There were variations and different gods filled that role, but their gods, man, woman. Their worship, sex act. Their, uh, the result of that, fertility. That's what God is telling Israel. You're going to be going into that. Don't do it. There's a reason I didn't appear to you with a form. Because I don't want to be copied. I don't want to be carved into an idol because then that gives the worshiper, the whole reason for idols is to give the worshiper a sense of control over the deity. Or at least immediate access to the deity. And God's saying, no, that is not how the deity works. That's not how godliness works. None of that. And he goes on, he says, so no male or woman, or like any animal on the earth or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Don't worship creation. You notice the specific things he said? Male or female, animals, things that crawl along the ground, fish, birds, sun, moon, and stars. Those are the things that were created in that second column of Genesis on days 4, 5, and 6, but in the exact opposite order. He's in the opposite order. Day 4, sun, moon, and stars. Day 5, birds and fish. Day 6, animals, crawling things, and then humans. And so God's gone down the list, said don't worship this, don't worship this, don't worship this, or this. Which all happened to be things that the nations around Israel all worshipped. And God says, no, don't worship those things. Those are the things that God's apportioned to all mankind. Those are the common elements of creation. They're for everybody. You know, Jesus will say, the rain falls on the good and the evil. It's common grace. They're there to serve humanity and to be used by humanity and to be stewarded by humanity, protected, taken care of by humanity, not exploited or destroyed. Don't worship them. This is where modern ecology movements go astray. Christians should be, I've said this before, Christians should be at the forefront of environmental protection. We should be leading the charge in caring for this planet because it's not our planet. It's God's planet. Where they go astray is much of the modern ecological movement says we should be caring for this planet because it's our mother. And that's not right. We should be caring for this planet because it's our little sister. It's our cousin. It's, it's under us, so it's related to us. But it's not our mother. But despite the worldview differences, at least where Christians and pagans can come together is saying... We shouldn't be destroying this place and we shouldn't be screwing it up because it is God's property. You know, if I loan you my car and say, hey, take care of this for me, I'm going to be back in a week, I don't want you to take it to a demolition derby. <laughs> I don't want you drag racing in it. You'd lose. Uh, I don't want, you know, like, I want you to take care of my car. Put gas in it so when I get it back, I have gas, you know, like, just... Vacuum it, wash it, take care of it. That's what God's saying. Take care of this planet for me, this world, these animals. So again, it's not just because you're a tree-hugging, nature-loving, puppy-dog-petting, soft heart. The fiercest, most dominant, most aggressive, godly warriors should channel that into protecting the thing that the king has entrusted us, which is creation.
creation, but not to bow down to it. That's the era where it goes off the rails. That's where creation care becomes idolatry. But we don't throw out creation care just because other people make an idol of it. It's a hard thing for Christians to find that balance, especially in a politicized culture where everything becomes a litmus test for whether you're left-wing or right-wing, a hippie or a you know, yuppie. All the, and it's like, no, 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 just stay the line, stay the balance. It's God's creation. So he goes on to say, uh, but as for you, the Lord took you, brought you out of the iron smelting furnace or the iron furnace of iron out of Egypt to be the people of, in, of his inheritance as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land that your Lord, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. I'll die in this land. I'll not cross into the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. I'll die in this land. I'll die in Moab. This land, eh, this is not a good land. But you're about to go in the good land. I don't get to go there, so you better listen to what I'm telling you. This is the sense that Moses is giving the people. He's using a little bit of good, good Jewish family guilt. You know, I don't get to go. I don't get to experience it. Meaning, so you get to experience it. You get to make the most. You know, it's good, that's a good way to use guilt, parents, if you want to motivate. Right? I mean, there's a right way and a wrong way, but he's doing it. He's saying, I don't, I'm not going to get it. I've drove, I've shepherded for 40 years, 80 years actually, if you count the time he was in Midian, and I'm not going to see it. And it's your fault. <laughs> because of you. <laughs> yes. Now remember, he's saying it to the people who it, it was not their fault. It was their parents' fault. And he's saying it to them as y'all. So that gives them the needed distance to say, yes, it wasn't me that did it, but it was us that did it. And we are need to be faithful for Moses' sake. It's kind of a rallying cry. <clears throat> yeah. So he, then he goes on and says, um, be care- uh, verse 23, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God, or a zealous God, the way you translate it, it's contextual. But jealous, I think, in this context fits, because all of this is the image of marriage. Uh, God will talk, prophets will talk about this as an image of marriage. And jealousy, is, the right experience for jealousy is when one spouse cheats with another. That's when jealousy is the correct response. That's when zealotry is the correct response. You don't have a right to be jealous of something that has not committed itself to you. But when someone commits and binds themselves to you, pledges faithfulness for life, and then goes and runs after someone else, that is when jealousy is an appropriate response. And that's what God is saying He is. Moses is telling the people, God is a jealous God, not a petty jealous, not jealous because He didn't get with the other person. No, jealous for the relationship for the covenant, for the agreement. And he also reminds them he's a consuming fire. He's not your homeboy. He's not buddy Jesus. He's not old man in the sky with a long beard that just wants to give you stuff and everybody eventually will get to heaven because people are all innately good. He's not that. He's a consuming fire. 
What does a fire consume? It consumes anything that's, in, that's perishable. Anything that will be burned up is burned up. Only what's pure, imperishable, fireproof will remain. That's why Paul uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians to describe the day of judgment when God judges people's ministries and the things they're building and laboring. And Peter uses it, and James uses it, or excuse me, um, Peter uses it uh, to describe when God will come and judge and cleanse the earth, with, not with water like he did the first time, but with fire, not to flood it and wash it away, but to burn it away. Burn away all that's against, that's corruptible, that's perishable, so that what will remain is what's imperishable, incorruptible, and eternal. And that will remain. That's what will be left when it's all said and done. And so Moses, we gotta we gotta wrap up here. Um, Moses is gonna finish, and he's gonna go on to ground it in the final word of his sermon, which is the the whole remember and 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 this is the nature of God itself. And then he's gonna go into the stipulation. So we're building to the crescendo. Next week will be the crescendo. Um, but this week will not because we have to go. We're 40 seconds over. So have a great week. There's more food here. Tell your friends that weren't here today we missed them. And come back next Tuesday. Bye.